A Saudi Arabian Airlines 747 is going to Duran from Delhi when they disappear off radar. What caused this flight to plummet from the sky? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hello. We are preoccupied. We are a bit preoccupied. We are currently recording as news just broke about the Dallas midair collision. And yes, it is crazy. And I'm sure since we are recording this well enough in advance, you will have seen the videos and heard all about it. It is horrifying. I have seen the videos already. We already figured out the tail number. I mean, this just happened. And it was just reported by the media half an hour ago. So yeah, on a completely coincidental note, so since we're recording this on November 12th, it is also the anniversary of the crash we're about to cover, which is also a midair collision. Which you probably already figured out by the title of this episode. And if you hadn't, then I don't hide much. <laughs> so you're going to be in the same boat as me because I'm like, it's a midair collision. Do I know how it happened? No. But the irony definitely hit us today. The coincidences are strong. Yes. So. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway, before we get into that. Some housekeeping stuff. Good job on the newsletters, by the way. I'll, yeah, yeah. I'll actually give you guys the answers to the November trivia, trivia questions. questions. Let me just pull them up real quick. You'll actually be responding to those. Thanks. Yeah. That actually, it makes me actually excited to actually do stuff. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so the first one is, what is Christy's favorite color? Her favorite color is teal. What was the accuracy on those answers? Of the people who submitted it, most people got those right. Yes. There's a few people who are like, I don't know the answers to any of these, so I don't answer them. But it, that's okay. And then, what is Miranda's favorite kind of plane? My favorite plane is a Concorde. And then, what is Christy's day job? Christy is an accountant. What was the accuracy on that one? I think there was like one person who got that right. Oh, well. And then what's Nick's weird hobby? He looks at maps, <laughs> specifically of airports. Yeah. <laughs> but he just looks at maps. I do. Like, I look at that's maps. That's what he does. During post episodes, he'll just sit here and look at maps. Like so. a freaking weirdo. Hello. So me. there are your answers for this. And for the next one, we'll have a whole new set of trivia questions. We already started brainstorming lists of trivia questions. So. Yep. Yeah. yeah, maybe we should have some aviation-related ones thrown in there. I don't know. I, li- I kind of <laughs> like the ones that are like about us, about our podcast. That's fair because then they're specific to us. Sure. So, and a couple of people actually said that they actually like that it's about us. Oh, not just about aviation. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Uh, so well- yeah, there you go. If you want to get the newsletter, there's a sign up on the homepage of our website. So you can go and do that if you so wish to do so. Miranda puts a lot of effort into those. Yes. So. Yeah, they take a good portion of my time. Yes. As I've said a few months ago. Um, Thanks for so doing that. thank you for those of you who do answer those because then I'm like, okay, well, at least... People are reading it. <laughs> well, and even There was even some people that are like, I'm not going to answer the trivia questions, but I do read it. So please keep doing it. Okay. <laughs> cool. okay. Anyway, apart from that, ducks are still available if you would like ducks. Patreon stuff is still available if you would like to Patreon. Patreon. <laughs> There's a bunch of stuff on Patreon that you can check out if you Shameless plug. We have so much stuff. You get a lot of stuff from Patreon, and we give you a lot of stuff. Oh, and the season is arriving. Should you need, I don't know, an ornament or two? 
those are on our merch store. Yes. So. Or if you would just like to gift anything or get yourself something nice from our merch store for Christmas. The backpack, BT Dubs, super cool. It is, actually. We got someone the backpack because they wanted it as a gift, and it's really nice, and now we all three want one, but they're really expensive, so... <laughs> Love to be able to day trip around with a bunch of hard landings backpacks. <laughs> so yeah, highly recommend. We are actually buying an ornament for our band this year, tentatively, so... Yep. With all that, I am pretty sure that that's all the housekeeping we have. New patrons? I don't think we have any new patrons. Okay, nope, well... I don't think anything's changed with Patreon. Nope. So... What are we covering today, Nick? Today, we're going to start with Saudi Arabian Flight 763. Thanks to, who recommended this? Oh, for <laughs> sake. You had one job. I no, think was, I have several jobs, actually. I think it was several people. It was. Well, fun fact, this is one of the ones that got recommended twice, and we did the stupid thing of putting it on twice, because ah. it had the first flight on first, and the ah, second and the flight second. on the other one, <laughs> and I caught it, and I was like, "Uh-oh, <laughs> we screwed up. Yeah. Thank you to Kate and Danielle for recommending this. I feel like there was another person, so I'm so sorry that I forgot to put your name on this one. No matter. If you recommended it, thank you. This is not small, by any means. Buckle up. Yeah. Actually, let's just preface it now. This is the deadliest midair collision in history. Yep. So there's that. This occurred on November 12th of 1996. We are currently recording on November 12th. Yep. By accident. Yeah, seriously, not on purpose. We're just really bad at planning things. <laughs> <laughs> or so, really good at it. <laughs> no, we're really No, we're this really was a complete accident. Yeah. We aren't that cool. So, no. so was this accident. That I'm not even going to dignify that with the response. <laughs> <laughs> that is not the only pun I will make either. The Saudi Arabian Flight 763 was a Boeing 747-100 with a tail number Hotel Zulu-Alpha India Hotel. This is the original version of the 747-100, which even in the 90s was getting pretty old and tired. Well, they made that, what, the 60s. the 60s? Yeah. That was when they first flew and were entered into service was in the 60s. So, so. like, this is a close to a three-year-old airplane. Yeah. Yeah. I would say it's a little outdated. 20 to 30 year old airplane. There's also many new variants by this point of the 747 that are significantly more interesting. Yeah. No matter. This is a flight from Delhi in India to Dharan in Saudi Arabia. Not a very long flight. No, not very long. A few hours, but the captain for this flight was Khalid Al Shibaili. He had 9,837 hours total, of which 104. Oh. We're on the 747. Um, okay. He is the captain. Mm. The first officer is also a captain. His name is Nazir Khan. Khan! Khan! Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. He had 7,779 hours total, of which 1,952 hours were on the 747. So why was he not the captain flying? Less hours total and less hours as pilot in command. He had more hours on the aircraft. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yep. And he's also a captain. The flight engineer for this flight was Ahmed S. Edris. He had 3,326 hours total, of which 1,755 hours were on the 747. So all of them are really well experienced overall. The actual captain for this flight not, left not seat. super experienced on the Pretty low in hours on the 747. He's relatively new. But that doesn't mean he's not 
qualified to be there. Well, okay. So here's the initial thing that's going to make me, and I'm going to totally preface this. I have Mm -hmm. no idea what's going to happen, right? Right. But the first thing that comes into my head Mm -hmm. is 747 is a double-decker plane, right? And the cockpit is on the second floor. Mm -hmm. And you're really high off the ground. Mm -hmm. And so if you aren't used to that, right? (laughs) getting used to that could be a little bit of a problem. Not saying it has anything to do with this accident. Because it doesn't. I will tell you. It doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> I was just making, it was just a, but a, yes. a ob- observation. observation. You are right, because in many cases, switching to a 747 or from a 747 sucks is a very big difference from a pilot's perspective, and it is very difficult to switch from one to the other. That's just like my initial thought is like, oh, that's fun. <laughs> so you're correct. Yeah. Whoop. Yeah. Very high off Way the higher. <laughs> yep. In Delhi, the aircraft had arrived from Jeddah. In Saudi Arabia, a different city in Saudi Arabia, and was now returning to Saudi Arabia with 289 passengers and 23 crew bound for Duran. The flight was scheduled to depart at 12.45. These are all UTC time. I am not here to try to convert any of this, to be honest, because India is one of those half an hour countries. Yeah. (laughs) And on top of that, the time zones, we'll talk about it, but the other flight crosses some time zones and I didn't want to try to do any of that. Quick tangent. Nick and I found a series on TikTok that was very entertaining to watch. There is this person who goes through all of the nuances of the time zone map and how utterly stupid it is. Oh, yeah. It is a fantastic, like, eight-part series. Australia, you got problems. (laughs) Go watch it. It's on TikTok. It's fantastic. Anyways, so the flight was scheduled to depart at 12.45 p.m. UTC time. This is still daylight time during the hours of daylight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But... I believe it's later in the afternoon. Okay. But the aircraft took off from Delhi at 1.03 p.m. UTC time. Right. From runway 28 at Delhi. The filed flight plan for the flight had them cruising at flight level 350 on route Golf 452. They were cleared to fly the Parvi 1 departure, Papa Alpha Romeo Victor India 1 departure, and climb initially to flight level 260, or 26,000 feet, before requesting a change once in flight. So before they departed, this is what their clearance was, was to fly this specific departure route, which is pretty much straight out. We'll talk a bit about this, but this is the route. You'll understand what I mean when I say the route later. Once airborne, the flight contacted Delhi Approach on 127.9. That's the frequency they contact them on, 127.9. The air traffic controller identified them on radar and cleared the aircraft to climb initially to 10,000 feet and hold for further instructions to climb. At 1.07 p.m., the flight reported reaching 10,000 feet to the air traffic controller. The air traffic controller then cleared the flight to climb to 14,000 feet, and the flight crew acknowledged this. 1.09 p.m., so just two minutes later, the flight reported reaching 14,000 feet. They reported this to the air traffic controller, and then they requested a higher altitude from the air traffic controller. The ATC replied, instructing the flight to maintain the 14,000 feet and stand by for a higher altitude. The flight crew replied, quote, we'll maintain 140, end quote. The Golf 452 route goes at a 270 radial away from the Delhi VOR. We've talked a bit about VORs in the past and what this actually means. If you really need a refresher, listen to the New York collision. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but this doesn't really, so the radial won't really have anything in particular to do with this, although we'll talk about this later on. But 270 radial, when you think about this from a VOR, 
we're talking about a clock or 360 degrees around that VOR, not magnetic direction. Right. So you're talking about 270 degrees away from the center point. Right. Of the VOR. Of the VOR. So that's what they're flying. 1.11 p.m., a disturbing transmission came over the radio to air traffic control. Translated to English, this was, quote, God forgiveness, I witness no other God but Allah, end quote. That gave me chills. Uh, what? This was the last transmission to be heard by ATC from Saudi Arabia Flight 763. Oh, no. That means they saw it coming. So. This. That prayer is required to be said if you see your death coming and you practice Islam. Yeah. So they saw the other plane then. No. No. They had already been struck. And, and their falling. Tr- and their communications were still working? We'll talk about it. Yeah. So they're praying as they are hurtling towards the ground. Just moments before that, while flying straight and level, the aircraft had suddenly shaken violently and was beginning to dive and spiral at a very high rate of speed directly toward the ground. Nose first. The air traffic controller lost radar contact with the flight. Meanwhile, Kazakhstan Flight 1907. This one's a little more unique. Again, November 12th of 1996. This one is in Ilyushin, IL-76, with tail number uniform November 76435. This is a cargo aircraft that is modified for passenger use. And it's not actually a very small, well, it's not a huge cargo aircraft, but it is a designed, a Soviet-built and designed cargo aircraft with a high wing and four engines. It also has a very large glass bubble cockpit, and they still fly. There's still quite a few of these in operation today, but they are also not new. And quite a few of these former Soviet countries, as well as just other countries around the world, have repurposed. They either still use them for cargo or have repurposed them into very cheap to own and operate passenger service aircraft with like no windows in the passenger cabin. That's what a weird thing, right? That feels like you'd be stuck like you're a prisoner. Yeah, right. I don't know. That just like if you've ever been in a room Mm -hmm. where you have no windows. Mm hmm. And like, like in school or something. Yeah. And you're like stuck in there for like hours on end and you're like, this isn't comfortable. I don't like this. Right. Because you can't see outside and it's dark and. Yeah. I don't know. I just, uh, no. Yeah. I don't like it. I don't like it. There's still like a few windows, but not many. Well, it's not like a normal passenger aircraft. Right. And you're sitting in a cargo airplane. Yeah. (laughs) Which is just weird. But this is by far and away not unique to this airplane. This has been done many, many times over. Actually, look it up during COVID. Quite a few rescue flights around the world, even for people in the U.S. to other countries where they were like on cruise ships and stuff and stuck. They would send cargo airplanes outfitted with seats on the rails instead, and they would pick up as many people as possible. So, again, flying in no visibility, just hoping you end up somewhere nice. Oh, <laughs> but that's nice. Yeah. No. In any case, this was a flight from Chimkent in Kazakhstan to Delhi, India. Ready for this? Because they have a crew. <laughs> the way you said that does not give me a lot of hope, Nick. Oh, it is a not small It crew. is not a small crew. The captain for this flight was Alexander Robertovich Jeripanov. He had 9,229 hours total, of which 1,488 hours were on the IL-76. The first officer was Ermik Kozhemetovich Zangurov. He had 6,822 hours total, of which 409 were on the IL-76. The flight engineer was Alexander Alexandrovich 
Chirprov. He had 9,201 hours total, of which 1,248 hours were on the type. The Navigator was Zhanbek Duisinovich Arpibayev. He had 12,789 hours total, of which 1,327 hours were on the IL-76. And last but not least, we had the radio operator. Jesus this Christ, is... was this plane from World War II? Why do they have so many people? Because it was designed by the Soviets. Thank God. <laughs> you might recall you this. Don't, you didn't need two extra people in the cockpit. <laughs> they designed it to need it. Since well, the war. <laughs> we'll talk about it, but this is actually important. The radio operator was Igor, spelt with an E, not an I. Igor Alexievich Rep. How many Viches are there? Every single one of them had Vich in their, their middle name, and I actually found out why. First of all, he had 1,583 hours on the IL-76. They had no total hours for him, so I have no idea how many total hours. To be honest, with a radio operator, they probably don't log hours as much throughout their career. Yeah. Not a common job. Anyways, all of them have Vich in their middle name because I found out that in Soviet and former Soviet countries, Vich actually means son of. And what they did with their middle name is they took their father's name and added son of to the end of it. And that is their middle name. So all of them have son of and their father's name is their middle name. That makes (laughs) a lot of sense. But it's fun when you have like Alexander Alexandrovich. That means his dad (laughs) has the same name as his. Is also Alexander? Yeah. Well, they're, they're, you learn something new every day. And the captain is Alexander Robertovich. So his, his dad's name was Robert. Yep. Correct. Interesting. Okay. Well. Yep. I just thought that was a weird tidbit. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a little weird. It's yep. Weird. Yep. Well, I also went on a tangent. This will be more relevant later, but when we were watching the Mayday episode, so many of the Indian investigators and Indian people involved just have like a... You know how we have, like, your brothers, PJ, or you'll have RJ. All of them have abbreviated first names. Mm-hmm. Two letters. I was like, why? I wasn't able to get a very straight answer from the internet. Either they're really long names, so they're abbreviated. Which is very possible. Yeah. Or it's something similar, that they take their father's name as their middle name, and that makes their name really long. Fair enough. Or the third option was that it somehow reveals their status in the caste system, and so you abbreviate it to obscure that. That could be. Interesting. So if you know, please let me know, because I'm very curious. Anyway. Or you could talk about cultures like my dad's culture, where he has no middle name. Italians. Your dad doesn't have a middle name? Italians don't have middle names, typically. And the Spanish have hyphenated names. Yep. Weird things around the world. Oh, boy. Okay. Anyways. Continue. The flight had taken off from Jim Kent at... 10.25 UTC time, scheduled for 10.30, so five minutes early. Good for them. With 27 passengers and 10 crew on a non-scheduled charter flight for tourists. This plane is huge. Yeah, And is. they have 27 on board? <laughs> yep, and a crew of 10, so there were also five flight attendants. Like, I highly suggest... I just Wait, how many up- flight attendants? Five. <laughs> 27 people? <laughs> Why? I'm not sure if all five were actually flight attendants or not, but that accounts for the other five. So, okay, so this plane, mm-hmm. it's, uh-huh. on, it's on the website. It's fairly big it, because it's yeah. a cargo airplane. Yeah, they're not small. 27 people. Yeah. That's it? That's yeah. like putting 27 people on a 747. Why? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, <laughs> was this even profitable? I okay. Again, very cheap to own and operate aircraft at the time because they were just kind of discarded. Well, fair enough, I guess. 
The final flight plan had the flight cruising at flight level 330 or 33,000 feet before entering India and approaching Delhi on the Gulf 452 route. Oh, boy. At Point Tiger. Are we going to have this problem where the left to right thing, the flight levels? No. no. Okay. No, the artificial horizon is not a factor in this collision. No, not the no, artificial you're talking about horizon. East to west. East to bound. west. No. The, the flight levels being odd and even. No. Nope. Okay, because that's the next good thing my brain goes thought. to. Yeah. Good thought. The next time Miranda has a thought, she's going to have the right one, and we're not going to be able to say no. We're going to have to move on. Yes. The scheduled flight time was three hours and ten minutes for this flight. The flight climbed to cruising altitude and maintained normally before their descent. So they did all their cruise portion normally and mm-hmm. everything. 11 a.m., the flight made initial radio contact with Delhi, reporting that they were at cruising altitude of flight level 330, and estimating Point Tiger at 12.43 p.m., so another little bit, with an estimated arrival time at Delhi of 1.23 p.m. So basically an hour and 43 till Tiger and an additional 40 minutes to landing landing at Delhi. Okay. 12.53 p.m., the flight contacted Delhi Approach on 124.55, reporting that they were at flight level 330 over Point Lunka, which is a reporting point on the inbound 270 radial of the Delhi VOR on route Gulf 452, 177 miles from Delhi. One minute later, they reported being 168 DME, or distance measuring equipment, but 168 miles from the Delhi VOR. I see with the look on your face. Why are you confused? Well, I'm not. I'm just trying to, my brain's trying to figure out what what happened, because it seems like it should have been fine. Why? Well, okay. So, because, well, landing and takeoff, right? So, mm-hmm. like, they're coming in for landing. They're mm-hmm. taking off. My guess is, is there was, they're on the same radial, right? Yes. And so, my guess is, is one of them was descending. The other one was... We'll get there. <laughs> and they, they hit each other. I don't quite understand how that would happen, considering they're both supposed to be on radar and ATC is supposed to be watching them. But, you know. You are correct. We'll get there. <laughs> 12.58 p.m., the air traffic controller cleared the flight to descend to flight level 250, or 25,000 feet. 1.03 p.m., the air traffic controller cleared them further to descend down to flight level 180, and was asked to report when passing flight level 200, or 20,000 feet. 1.05 p.m., so just two minutes later, the flight was passing through flight level 240, at, or 24,000 feet, when the air traffic controller then instructed them to contact Delhi Approach on 127.9. Sound familiar? And the flight crew acknowledged. The flight immediately contacted the new frequency and reported passing flight level 230, so now 23,000 feet, at 74 nautical miles DME from the Delhi VOR. So 74 nautical miles from the airport, basically. The air traffic controller then cleared the flight to descend down to flight level 150, or 15,000 feet, and instructed the flight to report reaching 15,000 feet. I don't know if you've picked up on anything there from the other one. Well, the other one was supposed to be at 140. Correct. So they would still have a thousand feet of difference between the two. Which is a little too close for comfort. It is minimum vertical separation. Yeah, like it's it's proper. It's legal. Technically, nothing should have happened. One Mm -hmm. of them should be at 150. One of them should be at 140. So there shouldn't have been a problem. Right. But there was something that happened, clearly, because they hit each other. Right. This is the legal difference. 1.10 1.10 p.m., the flight reported reaching 15,000 feet to the air traffic controller, as they had been instructed. He told them we're at 15,000 feet. 
At that time, the aircraft was identified on radar by the air traffic controller, and they were advised to maintain 15,000 feet. A moment later, the air traffic controller informed the flight of 747 traffic. Quote, 12 o'clock at 10 miles, likely to cross in another 5 miles. So they're 10 miles apart yeah. on a closing track. And they're so five miles, each other. Yeah. Right, five miles from their current position, they're likely to cross. So, okay, but I still don't understand. So one, it's either, it has to be one of the pilots f***ed up. Like, it, it has to be. Because if they had just stayed on their altitudes, they would have been fine. We'll get there. She's <laughs> smiling. There is there is a bit to this, but yes. I just, I don't, I'm like, okay, like they, they're like, maintain 150. Great. And they were told of traffic. The other one was not told of traffic, by the way, but they were told to maintain 140 and they should have done that. Right. So we'll talk a bit about that. The flight acknowledged the traffic advisory and asked for the distance between them again. The air traffic controller replied, quote, traffic is eight miles now, flight level 140, 14,000 feet, end quote. The flight acknowledged and stated that they were looking for traffic. So they acknowledged there was traffic and they were looking. This was the last time that they would be heard from. Because mind you, their closing speed is insane. This is seconds apart. But I don't know, like, what happened? Who f***ed up? Moments later... Someone the, has to f*** up. Right. Moments later, the aircraft abruptly began climbing before being shaken violently. Then it began spiraling out of control, descending in flames. So, let's talk about a third airplane. Wait, What? Don't worry, this one's not involved. Oh, this one just <clears throat> saw it happen. Yep. Okay. This poor soul. He was interviewed on the Mayday episode, if you care to watch it. It is on YouTube. He was. And he's actually in the report. All of this is listed in the report, too. This was a United States Air Force cargo aircraft. Uh. They depicted in the episode as a C-141, which at the time would still make sense. They weren't quite retired yet, but mm -hmm. getting close. It's a very sizable cargo airplane, mm -hmm. actually, and I believe that is what this was. But in the report, they don't say. They actually just give a call sign, mm -hmm. which is Mike-1815. I'm sure they just go by Mike-1815. Yeah. So, meanwhile, a United States Air Force cargo aircraft was flying nearby on the Amber 466 route en route to Delhi from Islamabad via Hisar, which I'm not entirely sure where that is. It's inconsequential anyways. They're inbound to Delhi. The flight was due to arrive at Delhi at 1.20 p.m., so shortly, very shortly. The flight was flying approximately 15 nautical miles north of the Gulf 452 route when the two aircraft in question collided and right. were flying. So they were only about 15 nautical miles apart. 1.12 p.m., the pilot of the cargo plane reported to the approach controller that he had seen a big fireball. Quote, we saw something to our right, looks like a big explosion, end quote. The approach controller noticed the missing blips off of his radar and immediately began calling for both flights repeatedly over the radio, but receiving no response. So the Kazakhstan 1907 and the Saudi Arabian 763. 1.13 p.m. The cargo plane crew told the air traffic controller, quote, We see two fires trying to break to our right about 44 miles to your northwest at this time, end quote. This aircraft and its crew had actually made a small turn initially as they believed that there may have been two missiles fired at them, and it appeared that they were heading at them, like the fires kind of, from their perspective, looked like they were kind of heading their direction, but it quickly became apparent that they were actually descending yeah. away from the fireball. So they quickly regained their course. They stopped turning. The air traffic controller asked for more information, and the Air Force crew replied, quote, Passing through, we saw a big fireball in the cloud, and I saw fire debris. Two distinct fires on the ground. Over. So now they're looking at two fires on the ground at this point. In the episode, 
because this captain was also hearing the air traffic controller make radio calls to these two flights, he knew what happened. He watched the entire thing. And he said in the episode that his he just had that sinking feeling where it's just awful. You know exactly what happened, what you were looking at. Mm-hmm. The controller informed his supervisor what was happening, so they contacted emergency and rescue operations immediately. Ground reports started coming in of two aircraft wreckage found in fields near several small towns spread over a five to six kilometer area. It was quickly confirmed that both aircraft were completely destroyed by fire and heavy impacts with the ground. It was also quickly apparent that nobody survived the crash. All 349 on both aircraft perished. That is a huge number. Yeah. I believe that's the second highest number we've ever talked about after Tenerife because that's pretty much it. I think Japan Air might outdo it. I think it was 350 something. What are you talking about? Japan Air was 520. Oh, yeah. So that one way outdid this. Man, that was a full airplane. (laughs) So this is the third. Both aircraft had disintegrated into mostly quite small fragments in the mustard and grain fields that they had impacted. They had nearly struck some houses and buildings in the villages. People reported running for their lives as the aircraft fell to the ground. They reported that the aircraft appeared to be falling straight at them. Luckily, nobody on the ground was killed or injured, and actually no structures at all were supposedly impacted by any of the debris. That was entirely just fields. That was pretty darn lucky, Yeah, to be honest. Some parts of the 747 were buried up to 10 meters or 30 feet, over 30 feet deep in the dirt, as it had impacted nose first at an incredible rate of speed. It was over 700 miles an hour, I think they said. Yeah. Which is nuts. It's about the speed of sound. Yeah, it's pretty fast. Mm -hmm. Both aircraft had crashed between Birohar and Kachurukhaku in the Rotak district, as well as between Dabi... Fogat and Patuas in the Bewani district. So those are four villages in two districts all very close together. Mm -hmm. And it managed not to hit anything other than some fields, which is miraculous. It really is. And all of this is not very far from Delhi. I mean, they're only 40-something knock miles from the airport, which is not far. No. This accident became known as the 1996 Charkidadri mid-air collision. Charkidadri was the town over which they collided before falling apart. So it's kind of the midpoint of all of this, which is why it's known that way. The 747 was noticeably more disintegrated on impact since it hit nose first at a very high rate of speed. The IL-76 managed to actually have quite a few larger pieces intact, although still very, very, very destroyed, as it had impacted at more of a flat level, actually. Yeah. And some notable things. Do you want me to talk about... How they struck? No, I will I will speak to that. Okay, good. That is your part. Otherwise, I was going to have to hodgepodge together what I know about how they actually impacted. Okay. That's it for me. So, who f***ed up? Because <laughs> <laughs> somebody had to f*** up. Yes, yeah, somebody f***ed up. Okay, this investigation was performed by a court of inquiry headed by Justice Lahoti of the High Court of Delhi. And the court of inquiry was established by the Ministry of Civil Aviation. All four black boxes were recovered. I was going to ask. Yep. And they were recovered on the first day. Yeah. That's just crazy to me. And they were all readable despite damage to their outer cases. However, to avoid any accusations of tampering with the data, 
The Ilyushin aircraft black boxes were read out by the IAC of Russia, and the Boeing black boxes were read out by the AAIB of the UK. Both of these nations were states of neutrality on the matter, which was very important to everyone involved, because at this point, there are three nations involved. Saudi Arabia, Kazakhstan, and India. And they all want to point fingers because it's a lot of people. I will get there in like two sentences. The analysis in this report began quite a bit differently than any report I've ever read. There were a lot of interested parties in this investigation, so they started out by outlining the presiding theories and whose theory they were. The Republic of Kazakhstan and Kazakhstan Airlines, aka the Kazakh side, agreed that based on the FDRs that the Ilyushin was flying significantly below its assigned altitude of flight level 150, possibly flying as low as 14,100 feet. The reason they stated for the deviation was weather, which also resulted in low visibility and turbulence, which each facilitated the collision in turn. The two entities also theorized some contributing factors, including that the Kazakh crew was unable to avoid the collision because of shortcomings of air traffic control and air traffic control's failure to issue adequate or timely warning of the approach of the Saudi aircraft on the collision course, and also the failure to instruct both aircraft to perform an avoidance maneuver. Okay, no. Here's why I say no. First of all, they were told to maintain 150, right? Like, they were told, Mm -hmm. you have to maintain, there is oncoming traffic. They are saying that... They were forced down by turbulence, that they did not willingly descend. We're getting there. They had reason to believe this at the time. You have reason to be mad about it, though. (laughs) So they're basically blaming air traffic control and weather. That's no, I don't accept that answer. The Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabian Airlines, a.k.a. the Saudi side, theorized a lack of crew resource management procedures and communication in the Kazakh cockpit, which, of course, pissed off the Kazakh side. They also showed suspicion of air traffic control equipment, systems, shift manning, working condition, and having a single approach departure corridor, which had led to a record of near misses. We will get to that later. And lastly, the Airports Authority of India theorized that the collision occurred because the Kazakh aircraft descended unauthorizedly, which is a word, due to an inadequacy of aviation English knowledge in the Ilyushin cockpit and lack of flight discipline and CRM. I agree with the CRM thing. What I don't agree with is the English thing. Because it seemed like they understood perfectly fine. We'll talk about it. You'll talk about it, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. We'll let you get there. Okay. But let's have the total thing here, right? Kazakhs are like, it ain't us. It's not us. And then the other two are like, it's the Kazakhs' fault. <laughs> <laughs> it's, yeah. You're, you're well, getting outvoted here. This is why they needed a neutral party. Right. I mean. But both airlines are also blaming ATC. Well, okay. So. And ATC is definitely like. Not me. (laughs) No. Right. Well, and I feel like, so I think the Saudis, they didn't get anything, as far as I'm aware from what you said, about oncoming traffic. Correct. But the Kazakhs did. Yes. And as long as they both maintained what they were supposed to, it should have been fine. Uh Uh-huh. And I'm sure, and I might be wrong, but I'm sure there was TCAS on both these aircraft. No. There wasn't. On either. Okay. It was nope. not I... required at all anywhere in the world at this point. Okay. And I didn't know timeline-wise if it would be or not. Right. So. And that's okay because that is a really crucial. I'm glad you brought that up because that will come up a lot in the second half of this. I'm that sure. is a very crucial thing that, of course, changed and was very, this... well, they were very well aware of it in this accident. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're so gonna... these three theories from the interested parties guided the investigators to have three main questions. At what flight level did the accident take place? How and why did the two aircraft reach the same flight level leading to collision? Could air turbulence have caused the loss of altitude resulting in collision? So the first 
question was initially not that easy to figure out, actually. Due to the time that it takes to read out black boxes, investigators were like, yeah, we'll just go look at the altimeters, right? The 747 had plunged into the ground nose first, and excavators had to be brought in to excavate the cockpit. Because mm-hmm. again, you know, 10 meters down. Yeah. Once that had been accomplished, it was found that the altimeters were completely destroyed. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh Uh-huh, so we're not reading those. The Aleutian was a different story. They did not crash nose first, so both altimeters were recovered. But there are two problems with that. For one, they did not reflect the altitude at the time of collision because they continued to work for a little bit after collision. So that doesn't help. Furthermore, the two pilots' altimeters were 97 meters or 319 feet off from one another. What? There is actually a really good reason for this. The atmospheric pressure at time of collision would have been disturbed, as investigators put it, which would cause to a misalignment of altimeter readings. Okay. So due to the nature of the crash itself, they became off. Okay. Which makes sense, actually. Yeah. Oddly. So we're not using altimeters, clearly. But this question was fairly easy to answer with the black boxes, and it became a widely agreed upon fact that the collision occurred at or near flight level 140 fairly early on in the investigation. It was also at this point in the investigation that the IAC of Moscow determined that in order to solve the mystery, the separate investigative parties would need to work past politics and have to compare the black box data side by side. Right. So they sent their data to the AAIB. Huh. How nice. So everyone's working yeah. together. Not what I would expect from right? Russia. That's kind of what we <laughs> Not said. Not we what were I would like, expect. We were like, wow, really? But also remember this is mid-90s, so this is just a few right, years. Right at the end. <laughs> just of, a few years yeah. post-Soviet Soviet Union. Union. And so they are trying to get along with the world. Yeah. And this was probably one of the ways where they were like, no, you know what? You... You can deal with that. (laughs) So the AAIB looked at the Ilyushin data, and they narrowed the collision altitude from that data to be 14,100 feet plus or minus 500 feet, so still a 1,000 feet margin. And the Boeing data further narrowed that to between 13,780 feet and 14,020 feet. And even further data refinement that they didn't go into detail in describing found that the accident occurred at almost exactly 14,000 feet. So it was the Kazakhs that screwed up. Somehow, some way, they ended up at 14,000 feet. We don't know why yet. Yet. We do. We do, but... <laughs> which, is the ne- which is the next question. How did they get there? So, first question within that is, what flight levels were they assigned to? The investigators interviewed the air traffic controller in charge of the flight. His name is VK Dutta, or Dutta, who was also interviewed in the Mayday episode, in case you're wondering. He recalled that the evening was busy. As usual, it's nothing new, and he was in charge of five flights at the time. He tracked these using two primary tools, and yes, that is a pun. One of these tools was primary radar, which sends out a signal to the aircraft which bounces back, relaying the aircraft's two-dimensional position. It does not relay altitude. Oh, that's good to know. So the controllers use the next tool for that, and that would be the aircraft's strip. It's literally a strip of paper that gets moved around the controller station based on its phase of flight. And the controller writes the assigned and reported altitudes on the strip, relying on the crews to relay their own altitude since they cannot see it on radar. You see why this might be an issue. Yeah. Exacerbating the air traffic control issue is the fact that although there are four air corridors leading to this airport, only one of them is allocated for commercial use. The other three are designated for military. As such, incoming and outgoing traffic are flying on the same path and rely on vertical separation to avoid collisions. Accordingly, Dutta assigned outgoing aircraft to fly a thousand feet below incoming 
aircraft. And he assigned Saudi Flight 763 to 14,000 feet and Kazakhstan Flight 1907 to 15,000 feet. And each aircraft reported each accordingly. This information was confirmed on each CBR. Air Traffic Controller Dutta accomplished his due diligence as much as possible in maintaining required vertical separation of 1,000 feet. Well, and if they're just using primary radar, you can't even, like, fault him for not realizing they were going to crash into each other. Nope. Because he didn't know unless the aircraft, unless they told them that they were descending farther than that. There was no way for him to know. So they can't put the blame on ATC. Correct. Yep. And to be honest, I really don't see... ATC being at fault here. I do agree there's a few things that ATC could have done better, but I don't think that they didn't do their due diligence, and I don't think that they were unaware of the potential situation, because they have to deal with this on a daily basis. Yeah. And specifically, they have to deal with this exact exact situation on a daily basis at that airport. So for them, and particularly for the air traffic controller... Not out of his wheelhouse, and he's very aware of what was happening, and he, when you listen to it, he really did make a concerted effort. Yeah. And I, I really don't think it's his fault. Yeah. No, I don't think you can place any blame on him. And the one thing I will say is, you know, a lot of air traffic controllers, I mean, they really, this, I mean, this hits hard, of course, when something like this happens in their airspace. Yeah. And when they're the controller, and talking about this air traffic controller, he was interviewed in the Air Disasters episode, and he actually continued the rest of his career out as an air traffic controller and then went on to college to teach it because he loves it so much and he doesn't he never really I, I like of course he was relieved when they said oh no it's you really weren't at fault right but he never really felt like he was because he was doing his job properly right he was doing with what information he had and he did the right thing and so he didn't hold it over himself the way that some air traffic controllers do, I think. Yeah. Even though this was the deadliest mid-air collision in history. In history, and still is to this day. Which is crazy to think about, and I'm sure in the moment it was a shock, and I'm sure that it still sticks with him, obviously, for his life, but he really he, did show that he... the reason behind it. No, and he really did show that he loved what he does, no matter. And they figured it they figured this out so early in the investigation that three days after the accident, he was allowed to work again. Well, yeah, because he didn't do anything wrong. So, how had the two aircraft come to the same flight level? The first piece of evidence to this question actually presented a real conundrum. Investigators analyzed the wreckage and found that it reflected a very odd story. When fitting the pieces together, it was found that the tail of the Ilyushin had sliced through the wing and horizontal stabilizer of the 747. Miranda is making a face. What does that mean, if the tail goes through the wing and the tail of the 747? It means they were even lower. They were right below. They were below the 747. You are correct. So things are real weird. And this is also why the 747 still had radio communications, because it went through the wing and the horizontal stab. It didn't go through. Right. It went through the most critical parts of the airplane for flight. (laughs) But it didn't hit any electrical systems or anything. Correct. So they would have had communication abilities. And they were probably all very conscious. That's the unfortunate thing. Hence, they were praying. Investigators compared the CVR and FDR of the 747 and found that they were instructed to maintain flight level 140 and they had been doing so and had not discussed ascending or descending at any point and had not done so. They were flying straight and level meticulously and this was agreed upon by all parties. Yeah, so it was the Kazakhs. 
The Aleutian, on the other hand, is a different story. They were doing something real weird. The FTR showed that after reaching flight level 150, they continued to descend to 14,100 feet, almost 1,000 feet lower than their assigned altitude. Why? Well, as I mentioned, the Kazakh theory was turbulence, and this was actually supported by sudden drops on the altitude track of the FDR. For example, one of these drops showed maintaining 14,886 feet for 11 and a half seconds and then suddenly dropping to 14,495 feet, which is almost a 400-foot drop. But would they have dropped 900 feet? This extent of a drop was recorded twice. And you are correct, that is very extreme for turbulence. That would yeah. be like some of the worst turbulence ever recorded in history. Yeah. Most of the time, aircraft only fall 10 to 20 feet in bad turbulence. That would be pretty bad. Like, 10 to 20 feet, that is what you normally feel when you're like, whoa, you know, yeah. out of your seat. Like, that's a 10 to 20 foot drop. Aircraft don't fall hundreds of feet at a time, which yeah. is why, like, this is the whole thing about, like, people who get really weary about, like, turbulence. Like, I promise you, you're, you're not going to fall out of the sky. You only fall... Tens of feet, usually, which is not much. And that's really bad turbulence. It has to be really bad, honestly. But it's really weird that the FDR is showing 400-foot drops. Yeah, that really doesn't make sense. The AAIB didn't think so either. So, they decided, for the purposes of this experiment, to say that the altitude track was unreliable and went about mathematically deriving the altitude from all the other parameters on the flight data recorder. I am so sorry they had to do that, because that is a lot of math. That's a lot of data. Oh, no. This is why you need to know your Pythagorean theorem, friendos. Oh, it's so much more than just Pythagorean. <laughs> but you know how everyone like in high school is like, when am I going to use this? And all these investigators are like, what the f***? God damn it. <laughs> This is fluid dynamics to the extreme. Blech. I am so sorry. This had to be disgusting. And this is before a lot of computer programs that can do this oh, for yeah. you. <laughs> like I could I could probably do this if I reviewed my notes from fluid dynamics and I had Excel or MATLAB or some other program. So I'm not calculating every single data point, which records multiple times a second. But I will say oh. something interesting and a pretty easy way to sum this up, again, I'm not the investigators here, but if you were looking at their graph of descent, the points where it actually shows them like descending, like the numbers are actually descending at a reasonable rate, they all connect in a straight line. So it's consistent. So investigators did the math, and they found it to be an actually very steady downward approach, and the altitude track seemed to be faulty. It was concluded that the altitude transducer, or sensor, essentially, was faulty and would get stuck and not transmit information for a while. But when it got unstuck, it would jump to the correct altitude. Mm -hmm. So it looked like it jumped hundreds of feet. Ah. Because right. it hadn't been transmitting the correct altitude for some time. So instead of just staying at their flight level, they just kept descending. Yes. Yep. So the theory of turbulence is uh, dismissed. Yeah. I was like, that doesn't make sense. 900 feet because of turbulence? No way. So let's go look at the CVR. This is a pretty unique situation because the aircraft was a modified military aircraft. One of the crew members was a radio operator in charge of making the radio calls from his own little station. I remember I said this was important. In comparing the FDR to the CVR, they found that when the radio operator reported at being at flight level 150, they were actually still at 160, which is odd. Investigators point to a couple of possible reasons for this. One, he did not have a clear view of the altimeters because they're in front of the captain and the first officer and not him. Yeah. And in the episode, he was depicted at being 
what we could traditionally consider the flight engineer spot where he's facing sideways okay. and has to look over his shoulder. I'm not sure how accurate where, that is. Yeah, where he would actually be sitting. But he doesn't have altimeters in front of him. Right? No. He doesn't have instruments in front of him. Right. And I also got mixed information. It seems some altimeters were in meters and some were in feet. If he's looking at the one that's in feet, sixes and fives look really similar. So from a distance, I can kind of understand. He'd be like, yeah, we're at 150 when it's actually 160, but whatever. So reason number one. Reason number two, his English may not have been good enough to know the nuanced difference between reached and approaching. Mm. Which is fair. Again, he was communicating in pretty good English, though. I mean, he wasn't, his English was not perfect. They found that his English was not great for all of the situation they were in. But it was enough to talk but, air traffic control properly and understand what was being communicated but you, to him. I mean, I can understand, like, yes. reached I, and approaching. But even then, they're still higher than where they should be, right? And they're descending. I guess my... This, this is not, like, a conclusive point to anything. It's I know, It's not but, causal or anything. They just pointed out, like, okay, there's already a slight degradation here. Right. Well, and I don't know. I'm just... Basically, either option is really unacceptable. Yeah, no. But it still doesn't explain why they descended below their assigned altitude. Yeah. Also, it was found that air traffic control had relayed a traffic warning of 10 miles out and to report when in sight. And though it took him a little while to acknowledge that transmission, the radio operator did so because ATC said traffic reciprocal is now at 8 miles, level 140, and the radio operator responded, now looking 1907. And yet the Kazakh flight continued to descend. Though a relatively minor note, it is worth noting that the navigator who is in the windowed area below the cockpit should have also been monitoring altitude and making callouts, and he didn't. See, this is why you should not have a separate radio engineer, because... This is why aircraft typically don't. Yeah, because I have a feeling, like, part of the problem is, like, communication issues, right? This. The two people actually looking out the cockpit, technically three, right, are the ones that are keeping track of everything. And if they don't realize, one, we're supposed to be at 150 because they don't hear whatever, or two, that there's traffic incoming because there's no communication about that, how would they know? Bingo, you hit the nail on the head. But they are also listening to the radio. It's not like they can't hear it. So, right. now we're going to come to human factors. Uh-huh. Kazakhstan was now an independent republic, but was formerly of the Soviet Union, lending towards a not-great safety reputation. Hmm. They were seen as a fly-by-night charter operator, basically, and what do we know about former Soviet-instructed pilots? Um, they're not good at talking to each other. They don't speak English very well, and they do not have good crew resource management. Yeah. The CBR revealed that while the radio operator was communicating with air traffic control, the captain and first officer were busy performing approach procedures. Procedures that should have been completed before the top of the descent. So they were doing their checklist items. And they were not paying attention to the radio calls as well as they should have been. Evidence shows that they were not actively listening to radio calls and had not heard any transmissions regarding Flight 763 and their assignment for Flight Level 140. And so they continued to descend. Here's your daily mayday messed up a detail potentially they implied that the crew potentially didn't understand that the other flight was assigned to 140 so they thought they were assigned to 140 but based on the report and the cockpit voice recorder it sounds like the two of them didn't even hear 140 at all they were just continuing to descend anyway they didn't understand they were assigned an altitude 20 seconds before collision someone 
assumedly the radio operator, but it was kind of hard to tell, said, hold the level. And the captain said, what level were we given? Oh, my Jesus Christ. This is why we say, yeah. like they. Sorry, were. he actually said what level we were given. Right. Yeah. That. Bad, bad English. Yes. It's okay. But this exposes his loss of situational awareness. He didn't even know what altitude he was supposed to be flying. And this is why we're not supposed to have a separate radio person. Because I guarantee you what was happening is even though they could hear the radio. They like, were listening. Well, because it, it wasn't their job. Right. The radio engineer, that's his job. Like he's supposed to do the radio calls, but he's not the one flying the aircraft. So if they're not paying attention and obviously they weren't, they are going to miss key details like, oh, there's an airplane coming at you. Right. And it's thousand feet below you. You might want to make sure you're not descending. So the flight engineer then called out maintain while they were at flight level 140, which is confusing. And then the radio operator yelled at them to keep the 105th don't descend. So the flight crew switched off the autopilot and the captain commanded the flight engineer to accelerate, presumably to climb, and the flight engineer, I think, increased the throttles to climb and ended up climbing right into the flight path of the 747. So they actually were climbing at the time. If they hadn't done that, it would have been a very near miss, but a miss nonetheless. Because they were already descending. They were already below them. That's how darn close they were to missing. They almost didn't crash. So close. Both aircraft were in a cloud layer, in case you were wondering, which is why they did not see each other. I Um, mean, it's hard to see when it's a clear day outside. I know. Yeah. So I wasn't really going to talk about air traffic control a whole lot, but I know you had a lot of questions, and they did cover an entire section that basically negated blame to him. So I'm just going to kind of scroll through it real quick. So he provided minimum vertical separation. So he did his job there. thousand feet. Did he put them on a collision course? No. No. So. There was only one route in and out of this airport for commercial traffic. All other were military. One route. That's why I said this is the route. They were both on the route because that's all they had at the time. So they were on the one corridor they had to go and they were crossing. Yes. But this is very normal at this airport at the time. That has changed. But at the time, literally, like, they were yeah. that were they were forced to cross. That is all the options were. So on a daily basis, this air traffic controller had to do that. And that's why the 1,000 feet of separation was very normal for them. They made both flight crew very aware, and both flight crew acknowledged the radio transmissions for these. And so that's why they really can't put the blame on the air traffic controller, because both flights acknowledged their given altitudes. Yes. And the Aleutian even reported being at 15,000 feet. When he was supposed to. Well, it wasn't, but it was at 16,000 feet. But still, that means he understood. And further, that 1,000 feet of separation should be enough and is still legally enough for all IFR traffic. Like, that is... Well, and I mean, like, going back to, like, the Kazakhs being like, oh, it was turbulence. I'm like, turbulence doesn't make you dip 900 feet. I'm like... No. So that that theory went out the window. yeah. Yeah. Um, So a feeble grievance, quote unquote, was made by Saudi Airlines asking why the air traffic controller didn't tell them. Yeah, that would be my one thing is like the other aircraft, but not the Saudi aircraft that there was oncoming traffic. So per air traffic control regulations and this area of the world, it was not even required for him to tell the Kazakh flight 
Because of the corridor they had and the assigned altitudes... He yeah. was not required to tell them. He did so as a courtesy. Oh, therefore, I would change that. Therefore, he was not required to tell Saudi Airlines about the incoming traffic. To me, Especially because it was supposed to be not above, at their flight yeah, level. Right. Above them. During critical points of flight, descending, ascending for approach and departure, all traffic calls should be made. Air traffic controllers. I mean, that's the most critical time. Because all of these pilots are very... Well, I'm, I'm sure this changed, yes. <laughs> obviously. Yes, and the fact that they did make the traffic call to the Ilyushin should have been really made them all aware of the situation, too. So that's another reason that I don't think, though, that he was at fault. I mean, he still made a concerted effort to the Ilyushin to say, hey, you've got traffic below you. Yeah. And when they weren't where they were supposed to be, that should have been... Ding, ding, ding. Investigators also mentioned that air traffic descending for approach normally requires more attention from the controller than other phases of flight. Which is true, which is why he gave Saudi left. Attention. Goodbye. Right. Why was Saudi flight 763 not held on the ground till flight 1907 landed? They were really far they from were, the airport. They were also <laughs> delayed. I mean, the other aircraft was early. Yeah. This aircraft was delayed. I mean, and they were, they, and they weren't supposed to even get to the point where they would even touch each other. So it shouldn't have even mattered. This was forty something miles from the airport, which by any airport standards is far away. And by that point, like that's not even remotely considered. Like, why would you hold an airplane on the ground for an airplane that's still like twenty minutes away? Yeah, that doesn't make sense. I'm gonna read this paragraph because I think it's mildly amusing, at least to me. If the contention that Saudi aircraft should have been held back on the ground until the Kazakh aircraft had landed were to be accepted, neither Delhi airport would be able to handle 20 movements per hour, nor would London Heathrow be able to handle 80 movements per hour. Yeah. <laughs> the suggestion, not being practicable, does not find acceptance. Yeah, no, it, that's a ridiculous thing. <laughs> the real solution to that problem is what they actually did, which is fixing the one corridor in and out problem. And they became better they, radar. Well, yeah, that too. They also got that. We, and there was TCAS. Yes. So all of these things fix the problem. We'll talk about that in the second half. Why did air traffic control not ask either or both of the aircraft to execute maneuvers to take them away from each other? Because they couldn't see the he had no their reason, altitudes. He had no reason to believe they were going to collide. Yeah. If they said they were at their given altitude, there was no reason for them to... He didn't say to that you could move. So right. it's like, he didn't know. He can't see the altitudes on radar like we can today. Right. So then there's the issue of the single corridor. At the time, the ICAO did not have harsher rules for separation for single corridor. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that has changed. It kind of has. So typically, most commercial airports on Earth have approach or arrival paths. This would be more in the arrival zone than an approach. Arrival routes and departure routes, and they are two totally separate things that do not overlap. And a lot of time is spent at very large airports studying and perfecting these routes all the time, and they change all the time because they want to make sure that arriving and departing traffic have zero reason to conflict. Yeah. It's simple as that. And so these arrival and departure routes, they're usually many thousands of feet apart when they do cross, and they're usually going totally different directions, right. not at the same the same direction, not crossing. Yeah. So basically, investigators said, although it sucks, there's a single corridor, it didn't cause it. No. Vertical separation was called for. Mm -hmm. No, the Kazakhs weren't paying attention. I'm going to read another paragraph that has not been brought to light at all. I haven't read anything about it, and I think it's interesting. It was brought out by AAI Council that the restructuring of certain routes, including G 
452, the route on which the mid-air collision occurred, in Delhi TMA is already on the anvil as part of the Air Traffic Control Modernization Project. Having visited Heathrow and Associated London Area and Terminal Control Center, the court is of the opinion that there is an urgent need to emulate the National Air Traffic Services model, at least in the matter of increasing the traffic handling capacity at Indian airports, which is regrettably low. <laughs> That's what they said. Okay, then. Well, yeah. They're like, hey, look at London. London's really freaking busy. Let's do that. I will say to this day, though, Indian airports, don't get me wrong, they're very busy, but they're nowhere near at the like the levels of... No, Heathrow but I mean, it's, such per it's hour. still, they are very busy. And the problem that they do have is congestion. Like notoriously Indian airports, you will spend an enormous amount of time on the ground taxiing to and from. And that is because of the weird ways their airspace have always worked. They did fix this problem with Delhi, but it is still a very congested airport. It's still very slow to get in and out. But the suggestion is there. It's that Heathrow doesn't have midair collisions. What are they doing that right. we're not? They have four times as much traffic as we do. Right. Especially when you're talking about Delhi having also like three other near misses in the same time frame. Yeah. As this accident. They were like, "Mm, maybe Maybe we should should do something something. about this. Yeah. Because also they weren't having to report at the time these near misses. Oh, that's great. Their ATC rules. They were like, oh, it happened. Okay. So investigators also spent a good chunk of this section of the report going through secondary radar and what it is and how it helps. The way that secondary radar works, which is what is used in most of the world at this point, is it receives transponder data from the aircraft, mm-hmm. relaying position and altitude, airspeed, call sign, all of that jazz, and it receives that and that's what gets put on the radar screens. Here's the really tragic part. Delhi had the system delivered two Oof. weeks before, before the, the, ac- the accident. So they hadn't installed it yet. They hadn't even unboxed it. <laughs> it well. was all still packaged up waiting to be installed. Damn. And it didn't get installed for like a further two years. Jesus. Well, because you, you probably have to take the whole system down to install it. So. I'm sure it was a very long and arduous process, but no matter... They needed to work on this so fast. I mean, uh, it's also it worth noting, according to the Mayday episode, it still took a couple years after the collision for it to be installed. Yeah, I said that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's not great. No, no, it's two not. years is. There's a long no time. reason for it to take multiple years. Yeah, I'm sure it was a process when but the major thing occurred. Right when they're having this issue, basically on a daily basis, one fix the corridors like that. You need to switch everything immediately. They they have three other corridors. (laughs) Right. Well, the big problem with that, and I know we didn't really talk about this, but military ATC and civilian ATC at these airports, separate. They weren't talking to each other. That's why they had different corridors. And the military was much more present at this airport and busy. And so they were like, we have precedent. And then eventually when stuff like this happened, they were like, no, you don't. (laughs) Sorry, but no, you are nowhere near as busy as the domestic traffic and international traffic that we have to handle. So, no. The Saudi side contended that the radar control on the day the accident was overworked, and this might have been a factor. Mm. Maybe, but... The Airport Authority of India said no! I will say they have a lot of recommendations and findings around ATC, and I don't talk a lot about it, but... We'll get there. So the court investigated this matter and did find that the radar controller workload was definitely excessive. Yes. This was due to the fact that the traffic intensity was high and there was only one controller handling both arriving and departing flights. Correct. Yeah, that's not great either. No, but... Despite that, the radar controller handled the traffic situation very confidently and efficiently. 
this was not his fault. As if we're just reiterating, his workload was not a factor in the collision. A lot of this comes from the fact that the airport authority, and more importantly, like the Indian authority regulation in India, they had no member on the board and therefore no importance of air traffic control in the country. They literally like were like, that just happens around everything happening to airplanes. Just you figure it out. They didn't even put a person on the board to talk about this. All right. Well, we can probably get to everything else yes. during the findings and wrecks and stuff. Hold on. I'm not done. This one. Is well, you're stealing a lot of my stuff. But this one is T intensive. There's a manual somewhere in the Delhi Air Traffic Control Center. Now, mm-hmm. the reason this is applicable, Kazakhstan Air Traffic Control Specialists requested to be able to visit the Delhi Air Traffic Control Tower. Okay. India was like, please don't. And the Court of Inquiry was like, just just let it happen. And they went through their manuals and found that there was a typewritten instruction saying radar separation based on primary radar shall be so applied that the distance between the centers of the radar blips representing the locations of the aircraft concerned is never less than five nautical miles. So they're saying your manual even says that they should have been horizontally separated. Not just vertically separated. Five nautical miles is very excessive for IFR traffic, though. Usually in most of the world, it's one to half a mile. So. But then there was a handwritten note. Can't tell who it was put in by. It was neither signed nor dated. Mm-hmm. And it continues that sentence saying, unless vertical separation exists. Right. <laughs> so your your point is moot. Moot. So, sorry. That was a little fun. I just had to figure out who was saying what. Okay, now I'm done. Okay, we're going to take a break. Bring it a break. And then we're going to get to uh, the normal stuff. Yes. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We back. Okay. We're going to do some findings and recommendations. There's no probable cause. It really is just part of the findings. And I am skipping a chunk of the findings because most of it just retells the story. And I don't need to do that. So we're just going to dive into what I felt was really actually more important. They found that neither in the CVR nor the digital flight data recorder of both the aircraft is there any indication or evidence of any evasive or avoidance action having been taken by the respective crew. During the entire period when the Delhi ATC was in contact with the two aircraft, there had been no transmission from either of the aircraft to the ATC of any abnormality observed or any real-slash-anticipated emergency, indicating that they didn't know they were actually going to impact until they did. The Kazakh aircraft, you have to remember that when they... They started climbing again to climb back to the assigned altitude. They weren't doing that to avoid the 747. They were doing that because they realized they weren't at the assigned altitude. Right. So they immediately began climbing back to the assigned altitude because they were also being told about traffic, which, okay, sure, they were somewhat trying to be evasive, but they didn't actually see the airplane until it was too late because they were in the clouds. Yeah. And the crossing speed was insane. Yeah. So I'm sure they never saw that airplane until it was too late. They found that the mid-air collision was not caused directly or indirectly by sabotage, internal explosion, or by any cause external to the crew or the aircraft. No. 
The two are carved to each other. Right. They found that the accident was not caused by any mechanical failure or mechanical defect of any of the two aircraft, which was kind of important because they were talking about the whole instrumentation issue. Oh, yeah, the thing getting stuck. Right. But they found that that had nothing to do with it. They found that both of the aircraft were fully airworthy and free of any mechanical slash technical defect. So if if the thing would get stuck and then Mm -hmm. go back, Mm -hmm. did that also happen in the cockpit? No. Okay. It was just the data that was being. Oh, okay. Set. I was like, that would be very weird to be like. That would be an immediate gripe because you can't <laughs> you can't legally have an aircraft IFR if its altimeter is so jumpy like that. Now it's just the data being fed to the, the FDR. Oh, okay. They found that the Saudia Boeing seven four seven had been assigned flight level one four zero, whereas the Kazakh IL seventy six was assigned flight level one five zero for a safe crossing on the reciprocal tracks. So we know that they were assigned thousand feet yes they found that the vertical separation of 1000 feet for the crossing of the two aircraft as assigned by the delhi air traffic control was adequate and met the icao standards of safety yep they found that the saudi aircraft meticulously maintained flight level 140 they understood and held that 14,000 feet i use that word meticulously for a reason yes it was a direct quote and i think it was was also said in the mayday episode yes it was said in the mayday episode It, it was like very clear which airplane screwed was up. following the directions and which one wasn't. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> like they understood the assignment. The Kazakhs, not so much. Right. They found that the Kazakh aircraft descended to flight level 140, departing from the assigned flight level 150 just prior to the anticipated crossing. They shouldn't have. It was just a key moment they missed. They found that the route and approximate cause, so this is the probable cause, FYI. They just threw it in as a random finding in the middle of all of this, because there are more findings after this, too. They found that the route and approximate cause of the collision was the unauthorized descending by the Kazakh aircraft to flight level 140 and failure to maintain the assigned flight level 150. The factors contributing to the unauthorized descent of Kazakh aircraft to flight level 140 departing from the assigned flight level 150 were 1. Inadequate knowledge of English language of Kazakh pilot resulting in wrong interpretation of ATC instructions. This is all translated, by the way, so it's Obviously, the English is fantastic. Great. Turtles. Yes. Two, poor airmanship and lack of proper CRM or crew resource management, which to me is the absolute most important thing here. If you're going to have five people in the cockpit doing all these different tasks. They have to talk to each other. Which is, yeah. Which is, five people is, to me, is just way too many cooks in the kitchen. In the kitchen? (laughs) It's so ridiculous. Like, I understand, like, back in war times, right? World War II, why yeah. would they would need so many people because we didn't have the technology to have and, less than that? And there was a lot of other things around happening, like when you're in war, like just having to do all these things takes but way too much. For commercial service, yes. it doesn't make sense, at least at this point, to have more than three people. It just doesn't make sense. Right. So specifically, they're talking about here, poor airmanship and lack of proper CRM skill on the part of the pilot and commander, the captain, compounded by leadership quality lacking in him, which to me is honestly all of them, not just him. And I feel like they should have put more into that in the fact that they weren't trained properly. And apparently, according to the Air Disasters episode, they had earned a stigma these Kazakh airlines flying these IL-76, because this, I didn't even talk about who owned this airplane in particular, but is a very small Kazakh company. We're dealing with one of those charter operations that's really thrown together, and hence they're flying a cargo airplane outfitted for passenger service. And this is why lack of training, lack of cruises. Why do they just don't do that? Like it doesn't. It obviously it just never works out very well. Right. Exactly. Three. 
Casual attitude of the crew and lack of coordination in the performance of their respective duties by crew of Kazakh aircraft. So again, CRM, just CRM. in general, yeah. across the whole cockpit, just not good. And for absence of standard callouts from any crew member. So that's what I was going to say. It just seems like no one said anything right. to anybody about anything. And per their standard operating procedures, the Kazakh aircraft, they were supposed to have done, like we talked about, those checklist items long before that, because then their job was actually supposed to be listening to the radio communications. As it normally is on most flight, right. most flights at this phase of the flight. Right. This you is, should not be doing checklists when right. you're already on descent. This is why we both have sterile cockpit during critical points of flight, as well as just rules around how you listen to the radio. And this is why it's delegated to the flying crew. We'll talk a bit more about that in a moment but they hit pretty hard on that flying crew radio communication yes. during critical points of flight thing. They had a note. Crew resource management includes crew coordination, situation awareness, quality of leadership, intercrew communication. All these things just didn't happen. Nope. All right. Moving on to other findings, because that's also in here. They found that nearly 30 seconds before collision, both the aircraft had entered a cloud layer and experienced turbulence of weak to moderate intensity. The presence of the cloud did result in reduced visibility conditions, but the cloud did not cause any such severe turbulence as to result in an abrupt loss of altitude to the extent of 1,000 feet pertaining to the level of Kazakh aircraft. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Duh. I, I was <laughs> like, listen, Linda, that doesn't happen. <laughs> so if you're dropping 900, 1,000 feet, there's right. probably something wrong. Right. So... For those of you that don't know this, and we've not talked a whole lot about separation, but also your, what do you call it, margin of error, basically, when you're in IFR flight. And this is anytime you are above 18,000 feet or you are on an IFR flight plan on an assigned routing. Your distance of separation above 18,000 feet legally around the world is 500 feet and half a mile, which is... Pretty darn close, because VFR traffic, it is much wider than that. So that's a pretty good distance, pretty short distance. However, your margin of error when it comes to flying the aircraft, you are not supposed to ascend or descend more than 50 feet from your assigned altitude. And if turbulence is severe enough to push you past that 50-foot mark, then you have to find a different altitude. Yeah. Because legally you can't stay in a situation that's considered quote-unquote unsafe for IFR conditions. Because a lot of IFR routing around the world is designed not with 50-foot margins per se, but so that 50 feet is your safe space. I mean, that is, you have basically 100 feet of range you can bounce up and down in, yeah. which isn't much. But these aircraft are so accurate, they should be able to do that. And it's a standardized way of making sure that so much traffic around the world will never collide. So these are very, very, very important things. And again, if turbulence was at the point where it was dropping you 400 feet, that's why to me I'm like, that is insanity. Yeah. Like 50 feet is your margin of error. If you're dropping 400 feet, you need to be telling somebody immediately. You probably have people hurt. <laughs> yeah. And you need to be... Stuff hit the ceiling. Yeah. Yeah. And you need to be on the ground as soon as possible because you probably overstressed that airplane. They're not designed for that. Not so suddenly. Anyways, moving on. They found that the air traffic controller instructions to both of the aircraft were clear and proper and in accordance with established procedures. Nothing was wrong with his actual day of time of ATC commands. Nope. 
they found that the direct pilot controller communication was not established by Kazakh 1907 with Delhi ATC. The pilots were not in communication with ATC, only the radio <laughs> operator was. And he wasn't properly communicating with his crew, so they were supposed to be listening, he was supposed to be communicating with them, and none of this was happening. Do you know if this is still the case with military aircraft where they have a separate radio operator? That has pretty much been abolished around the world. Okay, good. Glad to hear it. Because it just doesn't make any operational sense, nor is it safe. And with modern technology, you can outfit many of these old aircraft so that at least you're communicating off of the radio from the pilots. That's not a hard thing to do. Like, we figured this out in the tiniest of aircraft really easily. So... This is not hard to fix. A radio operator is really unnecessary. No offense to anybody who might have been one or be one for some reason, but your job is nay necessary. They found that presently SSR is not available at Delhi Airport, the secondary, secondary radar. radar. However, installation of current generation radar, both primary and secondary, along with other ATC automated systems, is already in progress. This was noted because they had the equipment and they had to work on it for another two years. On top of that, they were working on a few other automation pieces that exist today at every major airport in the world. They found that single corridor, bi-directional ATS routes, at Delhi Airport was not a contributory factor for the accident. However, availability of unidirectional routes does enhance ATC's traffic handling capacity, which is in the national interest. So they were saying here, which I thought was really interesting, that the fact that they were on the same route, and I understand why they say, was not the contributory factor, because technically it wasn't. They were given the separation, the legal separation, to be flying on the same route in opposite directions. I would disagree and say that it's unsafe, but I would also agree and say that it was still technically legal. Yeah. And it wasn't a factor in the accident. However, they are saying that having unidirectional, so ways out and ways in being separate <laughs> from the airport, and I think that that is only super fair. I found that the outcome of the investigation by the DGCA, or AAI, into near-miss incidents is not being disseminated to the air traffic controllers from the training point of view. Every time they had a near-miss, literally, like, again, it was like, there was a near-miss, and they'd be like, okay. <laughs> okay. Cool. And tell nobody. Cool. <laughs> so, God. like, even the, like, the investigative body and the aviation authority in India was like, okay. okay. Great. Let us know when they hit. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty much exactly what happened. They never talked about it. It was it was happening so frequently that they were like, okay. It's a we don't talk about Bruno kind of situation. Pretty much. And they didn't use it as any point of training or anything. They didn't disseminate every time one of these happened as like a, hey, you should be aware that you are in a very, very, very high rate of near miss area. <laughs> Findings to the incidental issues, they oh, label this. Sweet Jesus. <laughs> They found that the altitude perimeter accuracy limits and the respect for the FDR installed in the IL-76 were not in accordance with those laid down by the ICO annex. In other words, the data being fed in from the altitude was really bad. Yeah. The IL-76, and that should not have been flying. That should have legally been terrible. And they should have tested that. They found that both Boeing 747 and IL-76 were not equipped with airborne avoidance collision system. TCAS. Ah, it, it has arrived. It has arrived. TCAS existed. Already. But it was not required. It was not required, and it was not standardized, and it was not equipped on most of these older aircraft. Especially because, I mean, we're talking about a 747-100 and an IL-76, which are both very manual aircraft. Digital things were not of the purview of these aircraft at the time. These were still very, how would you put that? Aged? 
Well, yes, aged. <laughs> aged. But manual's not even the right word. What's the word I'm looking for? Antiquated? That, no. But, <laughs> yes, but no. <laughs> yes, but no. Why can I not think of the word? Rather than computerized, they were... Analog? Analog, thank you. <laughs> That's the flippin' word. Why did this not come to mind? I stand by antiquated. Yes, they're antiquated. But these aircraft were both very, very analog aircraft. They and did not antiquated. have very many digital <laughs> features. Yes. They found that the IL-76 was not equipped with one altitude alert system and two altitude acquisition system. So all of that's a little bit confusing to me, but basically they didn't have any digital forms of altitude alerts, i.e. GPWS. In mm. any way whatsoever. It was awesome. all analog. Like, again, analog. This is an analog airplane. Yes. <laughs> there are still plenty of IL-76 flying. Well, I shouldn't say plenty, but there's still quite a few IL-76s flying. What does the internet say? I don't know. They're mostly in third world countries. And the ones that do exist have been greatly upgraded. A lot of military. Yep. Inevitably, yes. Civilian? They are primarily used in, and I kind of hate to say this, but communist or fascist countries. Mm. Not all of them. No, but many of them. North Korea, Cuba. There's a lot of Middle East. Yes. Asia. Yep. Africa. Mm-hmm. Africa. China uses them too. Like the Lion King. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Again, third world countries. That is a quote. We're not racist. Sorry. Uh, Russia uses them. Uh A lot. Uh Uh-huh. That's because they were made there. Yeah. (laughs) That's basically the only reason they'd be using them. The Ukraine also has quite a few. Yeah. Most of the former Soviet countries still had a lot of these and still have a lot of these. Uh, The UN? Yep. And notoriously, a UN one, I think, crashed, if I remember correctly. UN's had a lot of crashes. They are very sketchy in the way they operate aircraft, actually. It sounds like the United States has a couple for firefighting. Mm, Not exactly. We captured them. Oh. Well. <laughs> but we can't exactly get parts very easily. So we don't usually Gee, I operate. wonder why. So we don't usually operate them. But yes, there are a couple in U.S. territories that are sitting still. Okay. Well, go look at the Wikipedia page for Illusion 76. There's, there's yes. a bunch on there. They are actually, though, the IL-76s, because of the way that they were built, designed, and the way that they're maintained actually are one of the only Soviet-area aircraft that are certified to fly in almost every country on Earth. Wow. Because of the way they were designed. But there's just no interest from most countries because there are better aircraft. That's fair. (laughs) I mean, you're not wrong. But the IL-76 still proved to be pretty utilitarian for so many countries. And so the IL-76 is still used a lot by third-world countries and countries that don't have the means of producing their own because they're cheap to own and operate. Anyways, moving right along. They found that in the organizational setup of the DGCA of India, there is no ATC element to oversee ATC aspects which presently fall under the purview of the Airports Authority of India. Again, they really didn't care about air traffic control. They were like, we have it. (laughs) We don't have anybody that runs it. We don't have any department that oversees it. We don't have any say in it. It just happens. We just hope that it happens well. That's that was a bit of a sketch, magetch. Yep. Yeah. Suspicious. Yeah. yeah. I found that present systems of civil and military ATC coordination in India suffers from serious shortcomings, which adversely affect air safety in India. Again, they were operating on their own systems entirely, so they just didn't 
care. Now, there's a whole section here of findings that, again, I am not reading all of. We kind of touched in depth here, and I had just written across my entire page, ATC issues <laughs> noted. So again, none of this is really actually contributory. Part of why I didn't spend a lot of time on this is because this is not contributory to the accident. However, this is still of note. And a lot of this floats around the fact that training was really poor for ATC. Because it was. The way that the corridors were designed was really poor at most airports in India. Meaning. Right. The military and civilian sides being separate was really bad, <laughs> and there was no oversight, there was no simulated training, there was pretty much just to do it, and that's it. And uh, this is just so, it was so bad, so bad for them. And I, I feel for any air traffic controller that was present at the time in India, because it just was not an easy thing to do. Basically, they brought a lot of focus to the fact that this is such a highly specialized thing in a very modern and busy aviation world it has to have the kind of attention the ICAO put on it and the IATA put on it, and they have to start complying with that, which is a lot of the recommendations, too. We'll dive into the recommendations now. They recommend that the requirement of proficiency in English, which is the language accepted by the ICAO for radio communications on international flights, should be strictly ensured by contracting states. ICAO should devise ways and means to ensure such compliance by contracting states so as to avoid lapses on their part. So really what that means, because it's really poorly written, is there needs to be each country should have oversight in this to any and that pilot. being and said, standardized training. All of the crew of the Kazakh flight did pass their English proficiency test. Yep. How strict were those tests? Right. Were they ICAO standards? Maybe not. <laughs> We've seen this one a number of times in reports, even after this crash. So this is still, unfortunately, probably an ongoing issue in some places in the world. Oh, probably completely. Yeah. Now we're going to hit on one of our favorites. Crew resource manager. How'd you guess? <laughs> <laughs> I only said it like five times in my notes. They recommend meaningful crew resource management programs should be made an integral part of crew training curriculum with special emphasis laid on the importance of standard callouts and its efficacy by evaluated during periodic license renewal checks. So basically just making sure they're actually trained on CRM. Shocker. And they're following it, and they get checked on it regularly. Shocker. And standard call-outs are a thing. Shocked, I say. Shocked. Right. In tune with that, the next one they recommend before a pilot is appointed as pilot in command or captain, as having acquired effective CRM skill and qualities of leadership should be meticulously ensured. Ha-ha. Uh Ha-ha. -huh. Uh -huh. They should be well aware of CRM before they become a captain. I feel like I should have some glasses. Yes. So, like... <laughs> Like, Christy and Nick can, but I can't. Right. <laughs> I'm the only one who doesn't wear glasses. Have we ever posted pictures with you having glasses on? I don't know. Yeah, I think so. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Probably, because when Cause we went we to, like, the Museum of Flight. stuff. Oh, yeah. Like, when we went to the Museum of Flight. Yeah. Air ground communications with ATC may be governed as follows. They recommend in the terminal control areas, the requirement should be of direct pilot controller communication, invariably so as to avoid time lag and compliance of ATC instructions. Rather than communicating with a radio operator who then has to interrupt you doing checklists to say, hey, we were supposed to maintain altitude a thousand feet ago. <laughs> <laughs> just so you're aware. They should just be listening and talking to them directly. Shocker. 
They did have a caveat to this, which I thought was really interesting. The next recommendation, okay, I didn't actually put it in here as one I wanted to read, but I'm going to read it anyways because I thought it was really interesting and they don't do this around the world and I'm glad they don't. They said they recommend in the en route phase a crew other than pilots may handle radio communications with ATC. No! Subject to basic flying instruments being in this view. Really, just don't have a radio operator even though they're saying you can have one. You really just shouldn't. Yeah, there's just (laughs) not really a reason to have one now. Like, there's just no reason. Right. They recommend the AAI should bifurcate bifurcate yes ATS route to G452 into unidirectional arrival departure corridors within the limits of Delhi TMA to coincide with the commissioning of ATS automated systems. As they bring in new radar systems and such, get rid of these bidirectional routes that they have and turn them into unidirectional so they're only arrival and departures, just like the rest of the world already had. It works. Uh-huh. For a reason, they're very actually, using that word, meticulously thought out around the world at every major airport. They recommend to public transport aircraft should be equipped with airborne collision avoidance systems, TCAS. Yay, TCAS. So this was really, this is kind of the really one big giant takeaway from this accident, is that commercial aircraft operating within a level, and most aircraft around the world, be equipped with TCAS. And so this was the first time that we really thought about, hey, we need to standardize this. A lot of people lost their lives in this accident. It's very unfortunate. How can we avoid that? TCAS. And then we learned a handful of years later that if you don't standardize who's in charge of TCAS, whether it's TCAS or the ATC, then you can also have a large collision, Uberlingen. Yep. Also altitude alert systems. Also altitude acquisition systems. Digital ways of understanding altitude and alerting you, GPWS and such. They recommend that the government of India should create a suitable ATC element at a senior level in the DGCA to properly oversee all aspects of ATC. Tied with that, they recommend Airports Authority of India should have a member of the ATC on its board to look after ATC matters. Yeah, yeah it would be. It would be. A good idea. That only makes a lot of sense, right? Since it's only super important, and this kind of proved it. They recommend that the government of India should integrate civil and military ATCs, preferably on the pattern of NATS in the UK. So they looked at how, again, Heathrow and a lot of other airports handle military and civil traffic, and how in most of the world this is integrated. It's all one thing. Why would you operate separately? It's really not needed. Because you can. And in the U.S., you might remember, we had a separate systems way back when. We've talked about this in some previous episodes. And that changed pretty quickly because we realized how much of a mistake that was, too. And so they all operate on the FAA, or the government's, single-use air traffic control system. One last recommendation they recommend to the government of India should establish an adequately staffed Accident Incident Prevention Directorate in the DGCA so as to enhance the level of safety and civil aviation in India. I don't think that's entirely unwarranted, and I do feel like they still have a lot of work to do these days, and I don't say that in any kind of mean way, but they do have an unfortunately high rate of runway overruns in India. You might have noticed. And I feel like this, on commercial aircraft, not like small things, like 737s regularly, and I just feel like that should be fixed. Yeah, (laughs) like it shouldn't be a thing. Most of the world has figured out how not to do this. (laughs) <laughs> and I feel like by now they should have plenty of time to investigate any one of these and figure out how to make that not happen. That's just my two cents on that. But that is the whole of this. Things that changed. TKS! So. Corridors. ATC. Newer aircraft. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, sorry, that's I kinda, a huge part of it. I kind of phased out. Did you mention that India was the first to require it? The first to require TCAS? No, but they were. And then the rest of the world followed suit very quickly. And again, then we figured out that if you don't say who's priority, ATC or TCAS in the cockpit. But I mean, it's then it's a huge deal that because of this, India was the first absolutely. to say, you need this. Absolutely. And I think they did make some very meaningful changes. I think this was very important. And I mean, it had to because this was catastrophically large accident. Okay. Well, that was Saudia Flight 763 and Kazakhstan Airlines Flight 1907. Did Correct. you look that up? Yep. <laughs> also known as the 1996 Char- Charky Dodgery. Charky Midair collision. collision. That's the thing. Thank you so much for listening. This is a long episode, friendos. It's yep. a midair we, collision. We knew yeah. it was going to be. Yep. If you want to hear our conversation about the collision that happened today, we're going to do that in a post episode. You have to be at least a $5 patron to listen to those. And they're worth it, I think. I don't know. Yeah. Maybe you guys don't think so. I'm still surprised people like listening to us, <laughs> but they swear they do. They do. You guys comment. The Patreons comment on our stuff all the time the weird random personal things we talk about all the time yep thank you so much for listening make sure you check out the newsletters and the ducks and all that fun stuff yep and uh, if you have a recommendation i want to send it in yeah because we asked for recommendations a few weeks ago and no one sent anything we're getting to the point we're at like 24 short now yeah of a year so just a little wink wink nudge nudge there get good Get good. Get good. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a safe and healthy week, and we'll catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by The Lovely Page. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.